Our sermon text this morning as we continue to work our way through uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians is found in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 26. You can find that uh, text printed on the back of your order of worship. Paul, at the time that he was writing these words, remember, has been charged with treason and is imprisoned due to his proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul is in Rome, currently awaiting his trial by Nero, who is Caesar at the time. And if he is convicted of these crimes that he is accused of, he will be executed. He will be put to death. He will be beheaded as a means of state execution. In our passage this morning, Paul is candidly describing to the Philippian readers his present situation as he faces the very real potential of his death, right? Death is not an abstract thing for Paul. It is very near at this moment. And as he wrestles with these matters, he gives us a lens, a kind of paradigm, a way of thinking in a Christian manner, not only about death in general, but about our deaths in particular. Beloved, God's word is the most precious thing in your life. It's more precious than gold, even much fine gold. Beloved, God's word is sweeter than anything in your life. It is sweeter than honey, even the drippings of the honeycomb. I encourage you to listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you've caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Now, by your Spirit, 
May you grant us to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we might even more hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. I was in a meeting recently with a room full of people who are mostly in their 30s and 40s, and I said, you know, as a pastor, it's actually one of my primary tasks to remind people that they're going to die. This is actually one of my things that I need to do. We're all going to die. We live in this very strange cultural moment right now where we see an unprecedented amount of images of death constantly on the news and in TV shows and in movies and in video games, and yet it is deeply awkward and strange to talk about our own deaths or to be honest about our own fear of death if that is something that we struggle with. And this is a challenge because, of course, all of us are going to face these things. Every one of us are going to die. It may be a long way off in the future, perhaps, but it may also be sooner than we think. In either case, death will happen to us all. It is not perhaps fashionable in our day and age to talk about death much in church. Uh, People enjoy talking about other happier things, but there was once a time when churches intentionally built cemeteries right in front of their sanctuaries so that you would have to walk through the graves in order to worship every Lord's Day. And there's something good and right about that kind of old practice, I think. As Christians who live in an age where it is taboo, largely, to speak in real terms about death, we should be the first people to say, hey y'all, we're going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. All of us will die. Now, as we think about death, it's important to get our terms straight. What exactly is death and how are Christians meant to talk about it and think about it. You see, death, biblically defined, isn't primarily about the ceasing of brain activity or your heart um, not pumping blood anymore. Biblically speaking, human death is the unnatural tearing of the soul from the body. We see this clearly in the death of Jesus. Matthew's record of the moment of Jesus' death is described in this way. He writes, And Jesus cried out, with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. His spirit was separated from his body. His real human soul was separated from his real human body. Or as Luke puts it, then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He died. In order to understand this meaning of human death. Remember that God made Adam's body in Genesis 2 from the, from the stuff, the dust of the ground, the physical matter, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, his spirit, his soul, and thus he became a living creature, Genesis 2 says. Man in his creation by God is a body-soul nexus, 
body and soul united together in a way that was never meant to be separated or torn apart. But through the fall of humanity and the sin of Adam, death enters the world. And death is the tearing of those things that were meant to be joined forever. The separation of body and soul. So what then happens to a Christian at the time of death? when their body and soul are ripped apart from one another. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us an eloquent answer with wonderful biblical clarity to this question. It tells us, this is worth committing to memory, I think, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Do you see what the catechism answer is doing there? It's saying human beings are body and soul. But at time of death, the body and soul are torn apart and different things happen to them. So let's talk about the soul and then let's talk about the body. What the catech, because both are are necessary parts of the human person. You see, what the catechism is teaching us is that when Christians die, their souls separated from their bodies are perfected by Christ and are made perfectly holy at that moment and immediately go into the presence of God. However, the bodies of believers are not neglected. They are not forsaken. They are not some shell left behind. In fact, Christ remains by his Holy Spirit united to the physical bodies of Christians, the corpses of Christians, we would say, after they die. For our bodies are precious to God. They matter to him. He made them and our bodies still united to Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit rest in their graves until the day of Christ comes the day of bodily resurrection. And on that day, believers receive the fullness of what they have been promised, the fullness of eternal life. For on that day, our bodies and souls will be knit back together, forever reunited, never to be torn apart again. For death on that day will be no more. So how then should Christians think about death in general, in particular, how should we think about our own deaths? And again, this is no abstract discussion, right? This is a thing that we will all experience one day. On the one hand, death is, biblically speaking, our great enemy and remains our great enemy now. According to Paul, death is the last enemy to be defeated. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. And death's power will only be fully destroyed on the day of our Lord Jesus' return, on the day of Christ, when he will, as I said, raise the dead and grant them eternal life forevermore. And certainly our lives are marked by the horror of death. But that's not all the New Testament says about death. The New Testament also speaks of death as, it ha- as though, in some sense, it, ha- it is an enemy that has been, if not fully defeated, at least 
mortally wounded by the death and resurrection of Christ. Death's power has been broken, according to the New Testament. Indeed, Christians, to use the consistent language of both how Jesus talked and how the apostles spoke after him, do not die. They fall asleep. They fall asleep. You heard that language to describe the death of Stephen. That's how the death of Christians is consistently described in the New Testament. Jesus says, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to wake him. And that language is important. It matters because those who fall asleep will what? They will wake up. They will wake on the last day. You see, the great promise of the Christian faith is that Jesus has gone before us in death. That's what he talks about there in that reading from the Gospel of John we heard this morning. He had to go first. He had to become the way to go into the path of death. And he has indeed walked this path already. And in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has dealt death a mortal blow. A death blow, we might say. You see, in his letter to the Hebrews, the apostle writes that in Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection, he has delivered, not he will deliver, but he has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This teaching that Christ has now by his death and resurrection, freed us from the fear of death is so important, friends, for us to see. Because the fear of death is so common and prevalent for human beings. Right? I would argue, actually, that the fear of death lies behind many of the destructive actions that human beings participate in and engage in. We fear death and we, we try not to think about how actually we're going to die. And how afraid of death we are. And we just end up driving ourselves crazy, distracting ourselves, so that we don't have to deal with this fundamental fear. Beloved, I don't know what you feel when you contemplate your own death, as I'm sort of forcing you to do even this morning. But you need to know that one of the reasons, one of the fundamental reasons actually, that Jesus became man and died and rose again is so that you could be free from being afraid to die. Jesus has gone before you in death. And because he has done that, death's power is broken. And you have been set free from the power, from the slavery, as the apostle says, of the fear of being afraid to die. In fact, for the Christian, death is the final step that we take on our part in terms of our discipleship. It is the last thing we do in following Jesus, the final aspect of our going in the way of the cross. For when we die in Christ, we take the necessary step to resurrection. There is no resurrection without death. And all of these things are on display this morning in our passage as Paul contemplates his own 
death which seems to be moving quickly toward him. Now, it's important to see that Paul writes what he does in this passage, not just to sort of give us a glimpse into his own psychology, but more to give us an example of how we should think about our deaths as we hear him thinking about his. As he will put it later in Philippians, we are to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. That's the point of why he's doing this. He begins his reflection, he says to those readers, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. What is the this there? It is his imprisonment, his trial, his awaiting um, potentially the death sentence. This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager and expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored, or more literally, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul begins this section of his letter by emphasizing again his joy. He rejoices because he knows that by the means of the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Philippi, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, who is, of course, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's who the Spirit is, all that he is experiencing will turn out for his deliverance. It's important to see that Paul attributes the means for his deliverance not in his own aptitude, his own faith, his own spiritual resources. Rather, he says that he is dependent upon the prayers of others, their intercession for him, and on the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This, surely, friends, is a model for you and me in our own trials and difficulties. What is going to sustain you? Not your own aptitude, not your own resources, the intercession, rather, of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus. But what does Paul mean by his deliverance? He doesn't mean, necessarily, at all that he um, will survive his trial, because he writes in the very next verse, it is my expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but with full courage now, as always, Christ will be magnified in my body. Not when I defeat Nero's schemes and walk out of this prison cell. No, whether by life or by death, he says, either way, I will be delivered. Paul says that it is his eager and expectation and hope that he will not be ashamed Here Paul is drawing on the language of the Psalter. He doesn't mean that he is confident that he won't be ashamed of himself because of how he handles himself when he's put on trial before Caesar. Rather, he says he means that it is his hope and expectation that Christ will not put him to shame. Christ will not abandon him. Rather, Christ will be honored, or more literally, magnified. This is the same word that Mary uses in Luke 1 to say, my soul magnifies the Lord. Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death, whether he walks out of this prison cell or if he's taken to the executioner's block. I love the way that Paul puts this here, his hope. 
Beloved, do you know that Christ intends to magnify himself in your body? Whether in life or in death. So many of us have complicated relationships with our bodies. Much too often we despise, actually, our bodies. We carry shame about the physical stuff that is our body. We try to hide our bodies. But beloved, you should know Jesus loves your body. He loves it. Your body is, as Paul tells the Corinthians, sacred. It's holy because your body is a dwelling place of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus intends to magnify himself in your body. Both now in your life and later in your death. In fact, he loves and cares about your body so much that he will remain by his spirit united to your body even after you die. And he will raise your body from the dead on the last day. Yes, friends, all of our bodies bear imperfections. That is part of the fall. But we need to be careful to think about our bodies and value our bodies, not as our emotions dictate, But as Jesus does. And on the last day, Jesus will do this, Paul says in Philippians 3. He will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Jesus has a plan, beloved, for your body. He knows it's not perfect now that it's failing in so many ways, but he loves it. And he's going to fix it. He's going to heal it completely. It will be made like his glorious body in the resurrection. So don't, for God's sake, despise your bodies, beloved. Don't do it. Don't despise what Jesus loves and values and intends to fully redeem and restore on the last day. In verses 21 to 26, Paul continues his argument. He writes, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire, he says, my longing, my yearning, is to depart And to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, he says to his readers. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you Again, here in this section, Paul is reflecting intimately on the prospect of his own death. For for me, to live is Christ, he says, and to die is gain. Here in these words, Paul is summarizing a Christian theology of death. 
Yes, death is our enemy. Death is a horror. But at the same time, death is also an experience that we have no reason to be afraid of. And in fact, for the Christian person, death is gain. No doubt death is terrible for those who are left behind to grieve. But for the Christian who dies, death is a movement forward. It's an advance. It's an improvement. For in death our souls are made perfectly holy and enter into the presence of Christ himself. While our bodies remain united to our Savior as well. And await with him, the resurrection. In verse 24, Paul continues to develop these thoughts as he thinks about whether he desires to be executed by Caesar or to be set free to continue his ministry. He says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. If it were only himself that he were thinking of, Paul says he would prefer to die. That's what he would want. That's what he's saying here. Paul is longing to be with Christ. And death is a necessary step in that uh, way. Not because he has lost hope. He's certainly, to be clear, not encouraging or endorsing anyone taking their own life. But he is speaking in this way because he is full of hope. Not because he has lost hope. Paul prefers death because he desires to depart. To leave the suffering and difficulty of life in this world. And he desires to be with Christ. Because that is, as he puts it, far, far better. I'll say that the older I get. And the more suffering I see and experience in this world. The more I understand what Paul is talking about here. And I suspect that the same is true for you. I think there's a kind of holy weariness that comes to Christians over time regarding life in this fallen world. A weariness with the fallenness and sinfulness and suffering that exists in this life. And not just a weariness, but also a kind of holy longing To be with Christ. To be with the one who loves us. Because as Paul shows us, death for the Christian is not something to be avoided or feared or delayed by any means possible. Rather, death when it comes is an experience to be embraced. Even desired. Because death means being with Christ. And that is better. And yet, Paul is not convinced that death is best for him at this moment. To live is Christ, he tells the Philippians. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And in verse 24, he continues to expand on that thought. He says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Not Paul's account, but for them. Paul here is demonstrating what he will exhort the Philippians to do in the next chapter, in chapter 2, 
where he will tell them, let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others, right? Because for Paul and his interests, death at the hand of Caesar is preferable. It's what he desires. But for the interests of the Philippians, it would be better for him to remain so that he might continue to be able to love and serve them in the flesh. I think that's a fascinating lens to think about death, even our own death. We desire to depart and be with Christ, and yet there are people to love and serve and give ourselves for. The scriptures, of course, do not tell us exactly what happens to Paul in Rome. They don't tell us how the story ends. It's left unfinished at the end of Acts. But the consistent evidence that we have from the earliest Christian writings outside of the scriptures indicate that Paul received what he says he desired, what he yearned for. He was indeed convicted and led to the executioner's block and beheaded by Nero, probably around 64 AD. As we close this morning, I would just invite you, beloved, to spend some time this week doing what Paul does in this passage. That is to say, I would invite you to contemplate your own mortality, the fact that you will die. Do, I'm saying, as Paul, Psalm 90 tells you to do, to number your days that you might gain a heart of wisdom. And if that sounds terrifying and like the worst possible thing that I could suggest that you would do, then I would invite you to do this. I would invite you to consider what the scriptures teach about death. And the way that death's power has been broken in Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to ask the Lord to grant you the faith that you need. So that you might contemplate even your own death with the kind of freedom and joy and hope that Paul contemplated his. That's what the gospel offers you, friends. Beloved, this kind of freedom and joy and hope in the face of death truly is offered to you in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I know people who live this way. It is not crazy. It is offered to you. Because Jesus has gone before you on this path. Jesus has stepped into that dark place into that great unknown. He has blazed the trail. When you die, you do not die alone. That's a phrase that is not true that people say sometimes. If you are a believer in Christ, you do not die alone. For your great shepherd will be with you. He will be with you on that day, and indeed, he has been raised from the dead, that he might deliver you from the fear of death, 
that you might be set free from that slavery so that you might be able to say with the apostle, to live is Christ and to die, that is gain. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for um, the way that Paul instructs us here. We ask that by your spirit, you would grant us the faith to trust and believe the things he says and to embrace them in our own hearts. Grant us that grace, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.